This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Navarra Live. I am your host, Dalia Gabriel, and I'm joined today by the beautiful Ash Sarka. Ash, how are you doing? I'm good. I mean, I know we're going to talk about lots of very serious and quite harrowing things, but the little idiot who pilots my brain whenever we do the show together is just like, it's ladies night and the feeling's right. (laughs) The feeling is right. And as I'm sure many of you will know, will find out later during the show, I'm on, I'm very sleep deprived. So apologies for anything that might happen over the next hour. Right, so coming up later, we have got the Tory government who have made yet another move that spits in the face of disabled people. Uh, We'll be looking at a somewhat interesting debate on what should happen after the war in Gaza. And we'll also bring you some of the latest updates from the region. So make sure you stay tuned for all of that. Right, on to our first story. David Cameron has announced that, quote, extremist settlers from Israel will be banned from entering Britain. The former prime minister, now foreign secretary, made the announcement on Twitter saying this. Extremist settlers by targeting and killing Palestinian civilians are undermining security and stability for both Israelis and Palestinians. Israel must take stronger action to stop settler violence and hold the perpetrators accountable. We are banning those responsible for settler violence from entering the UK to make sure our country cannot be a home for people who commit these intimidating acts. Cameron's announcement comes two weeks after the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, declared a visa ban on those, quote, undermining peace, security or stability in the West Bank through either acts of violence or taking other acts that unduly restrict civilians' access to essential services and basic necessities, unquote. So Britain and the US are offering political and economic cover for Israel's genocidal assault in Gaza, which on top of killing nearly 20,000 Palestinians has also involved the systematic destruction of vital infrastructure. Yet they are picking out settler violence in the West Bank as something separate and uniquely unacceptable. And if that seems contradictory and confusing, that's because it is. What is happening in the West Bank is, of course, egregious and must be condemned in the strongest terms. But to act like there's this defined line between settler violence and state violence is simply disconnected from reality. Aiding, abetting and even arming settler violence is part of the state's strategy of taking Palestinian land. Israel's national security minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir, was pictured not long ago handing out state-bought guns to settlers in the West Bank. But this sort of relationship long predates today's crisis. For years now, even if a settler initially takes over Palestinian land without official Israeli state authorization, it is Israeli policy to immediately send in infrastructural and military enforcements to protect these illegal settlements. When settlers use violent means to displace Palestinians, torching their farms, chasing them, beating them from their land and homes, the Israeli army pursues a violent policy of inaction, unless, of course, the Palestinians fight back. Over the course of 15 years, 91% of investigations into settler violence were closed with no indictment. So the settlers do the dirty work, And then the state comes in and finishes the job. That's not incompetence. That is state strategy. 
and the continued support of the British government for Israel's actions in Gaza and more generally in the region means that despite what Cameron says, this country does support people who commit and facilitate violence against Palestinian civilians, including that which is committed by settlers. So Ash, what I want to ask you is, you know, Cameron was, to me at least, quite a surprising choice for foreign secretary. You know, Sunak had to go out of his way to essentially ennoble him overnight so he could take up this post. Do you think that Cameron represents any kind of shift in how Sunak wants to approach Israel away from perhaps the likes of Braverman, or is it just kind of more of the same? I don't think that this represents a shift at all because it took Joe Biden and the US to sort of make noises about restricting travel, no visas for extreme settlers first before Britain meekly follows along like an extremely loyal lapdog. So that's not a break with how Sunak and indeed the Westminster consensus operates when it comes to Israel. America responds to pressures, both international and domestic, shifts the line a little bit, augments its line a little bit, and then Britain does the exact same thing. So that is, I'm afraid, just more of the same. And when it comes to um, extreme settlers, I mean, there's a sort of nice get-out clause here, because you're not talking about anyone who lives in an illegal settlement. You're talking about people who've participated in particularly egregious acts of violence. And I don't really think they want to be coming to the UK anyway. So that's not exactly a massive, uh, you know, blow to the ambitions of, uh, you know, Israel's diplomatic strategy at all. It's something that the Israeli state can quite happily absorb. Um, But settlements have always been a sort of um, an easy way for uh, America and Britain to signal their distaste for some aspects of Israeli state policy. Barack Obama did it, even George Bush did it, uh, you know, Bill Clinton did it. Whenever you want to say, hey, 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 we're not giving uh, Israel a carte blanche to commit horrendous acts of ethnic cleansing, you know, we'll say some quite stern things about the settlers. That's never been backed up with anything that resembles leverage or pressure on Israel. So saying these people aren't allowed to come here, that's not the same as putting pressure on the Israeli state to change how it relates to the material support it gives to the protection it offers, uh, the encouragement it gives to settlers and those who commit, commit horrific acts of violence in the occupied Palestinian territories. Because if the government was serious about tackling the expansion of illegal settlements and settler violence, you don't have to go that far. You don't have to say, well, these are bad people who want to come over here and we're not going to let them. The Jewish National Fund, which is a very well-respected charity, so much so that traditionally every prime minister is allowed to become an honorary patron. The first prime minister to quit that role was, in fact, David Cameron. The Jewish National Fund, as Rivka Brown reported for Navarra Media, has given over a million pounds to a militia that operates in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories. The Jewish National Fund has long been accused of funding the expansion of illegal settlements and funding services within those illegal settlements. And this is considered a pillar of the community. It's got charitable status here in the UK. So, 
the idea that this represents a big shift and finally the UK is getting tough on illegal settlements in the occupied Palestinian territories is complete horseshit. There's a lot that we could do that would be very straightforward. You could revoke the charitable status for the JNF to begin with, but that would involve looking at the way in which a particular kind of, um, I guess, you know, ex- extremist settler ideology, um, a particular kind of Israeli advocacy, which isn't just about, oh, do you believe in a state of Israel? It's very much committed to the expansion of Israeli territory into Palestinian lands. The way that's considered um, a kind of pillar of of Jewish communal life in the UK. Now, that's not me saying it necessarily, you know, is this massive pillar, but those are people that the state and the government thinks are totally above board and legitimate to deal with, right? People who who are really up to their necks in settlement expansion. So that would be something that David Cameron and the government could do if they wanted to get serious. They, however, are not. Just consider this a kind of virtue signaling. Biden was worried about um, contesting the next uh, election, having lost support over his refusal to back a ceasefire. And now Rishi Sunak and David Cameron are following in his footsteps. That's all there is to it. With the word virtue signaling there, you know, it's such an overused phrase but it actually perfectly applies to this situation because as you know, Ash, you know, obviously it's not like David Cameron and even Blinken don't know that there is huge, there is not consensus within their electorates around the support of their states for this, this the genocidal campaign in Gaza and even for, you know, Israeli Israel's policies more generally, um, including around encroachment into Palestinian land. Um, so that they, they they know that that kind of dissent is really swelling and it's pretty strong. It's getting pretty strong, um, and so in an in a in a, a move to kind of quell some of that or seem to be concede not con- even conceding. I think is too kind a word, but to try and and show that there are some lines, even though there clearly are not lines when it comes to actually the flow of money and weapons. Those will flow into the hands of the Israeli state, regardless of what the Israeli state does, it's, it is a perfect example of virtue signaling because the specifically going for the visa ban, as you said, Israeli settlers aren't trying to come to the US or Britain more generally. It is a specifically irrelevant and non-consequential policy that will likely never actually need to be enforced and never be tested. And that is why that is that is why they are pursuing it. But for me, what I find so interesting is like how how long are they going to be able to keep up this mental gymnastics where somehow settler violence in the West Bank that nonetheless is being done by weapons that the government have provided, that is being bolstered by the military, both through action and military inaction, but also by the actual infrastructural supplies. You know, when a settlement is built on Palestinian land, that settlement, it needs electricity, it needs water, it needs roads. Who provides that infrastructure? The Israeli state. So the idea that they can somehow separate that from the Israeli state and prevent, present these as, these settlers as somehow rogue actors in this process, I, don't, I wonder how long that dissonance is going to be able to to last because it's patently ob, it's patently par- like a contradiction. Um, and we should, of course, remember that Israel is a very specifically 
British problem, dating all the way back to the Balfour Declaration, and that relationship continues to run deep. Earlier today, word got out that a very British institution, the Royal Society of Arts, was found to be hosting a secret fundraiser attended by Israeli President Isaac Herzog and Israeli Ambassador Zippy Hotavelli. The fundraiser was part of the Restart IL um, event, which is an event sponsored by the Israeli embassy to help raise money for startups in Israel. Listed speakers included British Deputy Prime Minister Oliver Dowden and former Labour MP and current Lord Ian Austin. A Times of Israel article described the purpose of the event as follows. At the London summit, 30 Israeli startups and entrepreneurs will present their technology to 200 British private and institutional investors and business leaders. Presentations will include sessions covering three areas to raise capital for investment in dual-use technologies for civilian and security deployment, agriculture, agritech and food tech, and AI and cyber. So why are we calling this a secret fundraiser? It's because not even the RSA's own staff were clued in that this was happening. And understandably, once they found out that this was an event literally to raise money for the so-called security technology of a state carrying out a genocide, several RSA workers walked out. And one staff member who was involved in that walkout said this. As RSA workers, we had no idea that our employer was hosting this event or that the Israeli ambassador would be in our workplace today. It's an affront to many staff, including those with family or friends in Gaza, which Hotavelli's government is turning into a graveyard. The presence of Hotavelli, who has made such sickening comments in justification of the killing of tens of thousands of Palestinians in Gaza, makes many of us feel unsafe in our place of work. We are ashamed that management has allowed this to happen. This, on top of our ongoing fight for fair pay, makes clear that they have no regard for staff well-being or the progressive values the RSA has historically held. So that staff member there was referring to the recently formed union of RSA workers. The event was also interrupted by a protest in which at least one activist was aggressively arrested by the police. A representative for Workers for a Free Palestine who were at the protest said this. Workers and trade unions throughout Britain, across different sectors, are taking action in their workplaces against complicity in Israel's indiscriminate bombing of civilians in Gaza, leading United Nations experts to warn of mass ethnic cleansing. We will continue to organise and disrupt, whether it's mass walkouts from our workplaces, blockading arms factories or forcing our employers to divest from Israeli companies which participate in the oppression of Palestinians. We will not stand by while a genocide takes place. The RSA have since published the following statement, distancing themselves from the Restart IL conference. They said this. An event was held at the RSA today by an external client who did not disclose the full event details in advance. The RSA neither condones nor endorses this event. We are an apolitical organization and have launched an internal investigation. We apologize extensively to anyone affected and upset by this today and will ensure that robust measures are put in place in the future to ensure this will not happen again. Now, given that it seems that according to the website for this event, that the external client was the Israeli embassy, 
I don't think you can be so surprised at what it was going to entail. But of course, the story here isn't about the RSA. It's about the fact that in the middle of a genocidal campaign in Gaza, 200 British private and institutional investors and government figures were specifically gathered by the Israeli embassy to fundraise for technologies that will likely be used in security contexts. And these kinds of tech investments are a key part of Israel's military infrastructure. Israel can boast its status as a global tech leader because in their backyard, they have an essentially stateless population on whom they can experiment and develop pretty sophisticated surveillance and military technologies. Technologies that, by the way, end up getting used by our governments on us. So Ash, we're seeing somewhat mixed messages coming out of British, the British government and also these kind of big institutions where they're, you know, condemning some acts of violence, some kinds of violence whilst aiding and abetting others. They're hosting Israeli embassy events whilst distancing themselves from the kind of inevitable contact. Is there a kind of fracture in the consensus around Israel growing? Is that pressure from the grassroots being felt? Um, or is this just a dance that they're going to keep doing as long as they can get away with it, essentially? I would say that there is pressure from the grassroots being felt. And this is why it's so important the work that Workers for Palestine is doing, because their strategy, of course, has been to picket uh, factories which are involved in making arms components, which are sold to Israel, which are used on civilian populations in Gaza, but also to broaden the terrain of struggle. So it's not just about these particular uh, weapons manufacturers, these particular um, arms manufacturers. It's about saying, well, look, all of our industries, one way or another, seek to normalize its, you know, relationship with a state which is carrying out an act of ethnic cleansing, which has been carrying out ethnic cleansing for decades, which has maintained conditions of apartheid and illegal occupation. And when you have to think about what, what it takes to uh, normalize that relationship. It's for investors to feel perfectly comfortable, uh, you know, chumming it up uh, with Israeli startups. It's for British elites, people who sit in the House of Lords, people who are at the very top of, you know, business and the arts and sciences to feel like the Israeli embassy is a representative of a perfectly reasonable and civilized state. Now, what is being done in Gaza is the absolute antithesis an, an antithesis of what you would consider civilized behavior to be. It's completely grotesque and it is barbaric, the scale of death which is being meted out to Palestinians. But it takes an awful lot of you know, scaffolding to keep up that pretense. And so when you've got workers people who are on staff, people who aren't members of this very, very rarefied elite saying, no, we're going to um, walk out. We are going to make our voices heard. We are going to stage a protest. We are going to have a picket. What that does is that it makes it nearly impossible to maintain that pretense anymore because it it brings the reality of what's going on, the political reality and the military reality right into the heart of the British establishment. That's why it's so important as a strategy. And I think that pressure is being felt. I think 
that's why you have this sort of, you know, strange hedging that's going on amongst the ruling class about, you know, yes, Israel has a right to defend itself, but oh no, I deplore this. And oh, wouldn't it be great if there was a four day pause in the fighting so aid trucks can get in and they can, you know, just resume bombing, you know. If it wasn't for that sort of bottom-up pressure, which is coming from, I think, just a very human response, it's, it's you know, of course there are people who are like very, very politically attuned and know the history, but I also think there's just a human response of people going, it cannot be right that thousands of children have been killed, that more are buried under the rubble and more are going to die. And I just object to that in the strongest possible terms. Um, that it's not just a sort of amorphous sense of... Uh, moral disgust that these are people who are saying, I'm going to do my bit, my small bit to resist the normalization of relations with the state that's carrying out these acts of repulsive barbarism in Gaza. Yeah, I think that that is one thing that has been so profound over the past couple of months because it's been quite a long time. You know, it's been two months. I'm sure that there was an expectation that by this time, there would have been some level of burnout, of fatigue, you know, that because a lot of the policy that Israel has pursued over the past several years is actually to kind of pretend like the Palestinian issue doesn't exist. And it's kind of what they've tried to do both within Israel to try and kind of make it seem to their citizens that, you know, you don't need to think about this open air prison that's right here. You don't need to think about the Palestinians here. Like we're just, and, and they've tried to basically shift what people think of when they think about Israel away from, oh, you know, this, whether even if they, people just have this very vague idea that there's some kind of quote unquote conflict going on there. They want, they've been trying to rebrand it so that you're thinking about, oh, nice beaches, oh, a place where you can go and, you know, go clubbing or whatever. And trying to basically make people forget that the Palestinian issue exists. And what the past two months has done is it has brought the Palestinian struggle and the plight of the Palestinians into everyone's consciousness. It is impossible to turn on your TV to and to look at social media to and even friends of mine who are not at all politically involved have learned a huge amount over the past two months and it has become front and center of their consciousness. And it's remained the case, you know, for almost two months now. I think that that is probably very counter to the political project that has been happening over the past several years, which has been to kind of de-link Israel from the Palestinian, um, from the plight of the Palestinians in people's minds. That has that has been thwarted, I would say, pretty irreparably. So on to our next story. International pressure on Israel to stop its bombardment of Gaza is growing. 150 countries at the UN voted in favor of a resolution calling on Israel to protect civilians and uphold their humanitarian obligations. The US voted against that resolution, but even its president, Joe Biden, has now warned Israel against, quote, indiscriminate bombing. And yet Israel is showing no signs of pulling back. Today, the IDF bombed the southern Gazan city of Rafah, an area that the Israeli government had designated and has still designated a safe zone. Airstrikes have destroyed two buildings in a residential area of the city, reportedly being used for shelter by a large number of Palestinians who had traveled south for safety. It's being reported that 27 people were killed in the attack, with some still lost under the rubble. Members of the family living in one of the buildings told Al Jazeera this. 
We had displaced people. One of them was our cousin, who was displaced from the north. Our neighbor and his grandmother, who were displaced from Bid Lahia, were killed too. These people were from Bid Lahia, Jabalia, Al Safdawi, and Nusayrat. We lost an old lady, a five months pregnant lady, her little boy, and her husband, my brother, his son, and his wife. My little niece is still under the rubble. Two of the refugees were killed too. Grim news has also emerged from northern Gaza. Displaced Palestinians had been sheltering at the Shadia Abu Ghazala school, located just west of the Jabalaya refugee camp. Earlier this week, the IDF reportedly entered the school. This report is from Al Jazeera. Bodies of a number of displaced Palestinians are seen piled up inside the Shadia Abu Ghazala school. That's west of the Jabalia refugee camp. Witnesses say a number of people, including women, children and babies, were killed execution style by Israeli forces while they were sheltering inside the school. Witnesses say they did not find any evidence of shelling or missile attacks. The Israeli soldiers came in and opened fire on them. They took an old man. The Israeli soldiers stormed the school, took all the men, then entered classrooms and opened fire on a woman and all the children with her, even the newborn babies among them. She, her husband and her eight children together with her cousin. The Israeli soldiers executed those innocent families at point blank. The school buildings are totally destroyed. We found dozens of dead bodies in the classrooms. There is no sign of any missiles or shells. All those who were in the buildings were executed from point blank. The Israeli soldiers opened fire on them. Many families came searching for their children. They found them all killed. They were all killed, executed at gunpoint. The Council on American Islamic Relations, or CAIR, is the US's largest Muslim civil liberties organization. They've released this statement about the alleged massacre at the school. Because the Biden administration stands almost alone on the world stage in defending and enabling the far-right Israeli government's campaign of ethnic cleansing and genocide in Gaza, administration officials must respond to the reported execution-style massacre of women, children and babies seeking refuge in a school in Gaza. Our nation must stop enabling what even President Biden privately admits is the indiscriminate targeting of innocent Palestinians. The Gazan Health Ministry has now said that more than 18,000 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza. 51,000 have been injured so far. But those numbers pale against the impending health catastrophe likely to descend on the territory. It's winter in Palestine, which is also the rainy season. And heavy downfalls are adding to the misery of the nearly 2 million people displaced inside Gaza. That's 85% of the population. The UN has said this. In the overcrowded shelters, sewage cannot be managed. Combined with the flooding and the accumulation of waste, the conditions have attracted insects, mosquitoes and rats, further compounding risks of disease spread. Earlier this week, the Gaza Health Authority said that they had documented 360,000 cases of infectious diseases in shelters and that the actual numbers could be higher. But even in the rain, bodies still need to be buried. This footage is from Jabalaya refugee camp. It shows a teenage boy carrying the body of what appears to be a child through the water flooding the camp, trying to provide a decent burial for a child that no one was able to rescue. Food shortages are also affecting the health of those now living in makeshift shelters. The UN's Philippe Lazzarini told reporters this. 
People are stopping aid trucks, taking the food and eating it straight away. This is how desperate and hungry they are. I witnessed this firsthand. We meet more and more people who haven't eaten for one, two or three days. Every time I go back, I think it cannot get worse. But every time I see more misery, grief and sadness. Gaza is not habitable as a place anymore. Rafah has quadrupled its numbers of people overnight. It lacks infrastructure and all the basics. It is not a place to hold more than one million people. One warehouse is home to 30,000 people. Families live in tiny spaces, only separated by blankets and plastic sheeting. The violence has also increasingly spread into the occupied West Bank. The city of Jenin has been subject to a days-long raid by the IDF. According to the Palestinian Prisoner Society, 500 men have been rounded up by Israeli forces, with 400 released after interrogation. The Palestinian Red Crescent have also said that Israeli soldiers have been hindering the work of ambulance teams. Amidst all of this, US National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has arrived in Israel where he met with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Earlier, Sullivan was told by Defense Minister Yoav Gallant that Israel needed, quote, more than several months to destroy Hamas. And in a further sign that the almost certainly unachievable goal of destroying Hamas has eclipsed Israel's attempts to recover its hostages, The Guardian has reported this. According to several reports, David Barnea, the head of Mossad, had wanted to travel to Qatar but was blocked by the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and other cabinet ministers. The decision prompted demands from the families of hostages for an explanation, saying they were shocked by it. In a statement, they called for a, quote, immediate end to the deadlock in negotiations, adding they were at their wits' end with the indifference and stagnation. They described the situation as a daily Russian roulette in which families are informed about the murder of a hostage in captivity. Ash, what do you make of these latest updates? I'm thinking particularly about Netanyahu blocking what appears to be an attempt to negotiate a hostage release in Qatar. I think that for a while after October 7th, where there were airstrikes, but not a ground invasion, and you could see that Netanyahu was trying to suss out what the balance of power and pressures on him were, you could see, I think, a kind of indecision. Was it more important to negotiate a release of the hostages? Um, What that would mean? is not an escalation of the war beyond airstrikes. And yeah, sure, you might get all the hostages back, but uh uh-oh, if you're Benjamin Netanyahu, you start being asked some very, very uncomfortable questions about your failure, your security failures on October 7th, and also all of those, you know, horrible things like a corruption trial end up being piled back up on your plate. Meanwhile, you're under intense pressure from the far, well, even more far-right elements of your own cabinet, and the army is raring to go. And so I think that there was that period of time just before the ground invasion where you almost didn't know where Benjamin Netanyahu was going to go. And then a few things happened. One is that you had this message coming from the US going, look, Sure, we'd like it if you didn't kill quite so many civilians, but ultimately we're not going to do anything about that. You know, loan guarantees, military aid, all of these things are going to be coming your way just as you want it. And then I think the second thing 
was that, sure, the lives of the hostages are really important. But ultimately, if you don't have an escalation of this war, if you don't have an escalation of the ethnic cleansing in Gaza, if you don't meet some of the promises that you've made to the army, which if not just the total destruction of Hamas, might also mean uh, you know, the resuming of settlement building in Gaza, then Netanyahu is really in trouble. I had a discussion with Michael during the period of um, a temporary ceasefire, those four days, which weren't really a ceasefire because the IDF was still shooting people in Gaza, um, but, but the uh, cessation of, of bombing uh, in Gaza. And Michael said, well, it's very difficult to imagine a circumstance where the war machine sort of powers itself back up again. And one of the things that we discussed was, well, if you're the family of a hostage who hasn't been released and you've seen other people reunited with their loved ones, you know, that's, it's, it's so difficult to justify, um, you know, not, not resuming negotiations of some kind. And I think that, um, it, it's, you know, it's not irrational, the decision that Benjamin Netanyahu has made. What he has done is he has placed his own political survival, how he judges his own political survival, above and beyond the survival of the remaining hostages. So what that means is total war on Gaza. Um, you've had uh, you know, senior members of, of Netanyahu's government saying it could take months to destroy Hamas. Spoiler alert, you're not going to destroy Hamas because bombing the living daylights out of militants who have only emerged into existence because of your occupation, that doesn't mean you get less militants. At no point in human history has that resulted in fewer militants or an end to a militant threat. You just get more of them because they've been radicalized by the very atrocities that you've carried out in order to destroy those militants. Um, so that's not going to happen. And the only way in which Netanyahu will be able to claim some kind of victory, I think, will be um, an, a further concentration of the Gazan population into the south of the region and depopulating the north, potentially resuming the process of settlement building. I think that's the only way he knows uh, how to how to buy himself a few days longer as prime minister of Israel. So it's a double tragedy. It's a tragedy for the people of Gaza who are paying with their lives. And it is a tragedy for the families of the hostages who have to live knowing that their leadership could have negotiated the release of their loved ones and have chosen not to for political reasons. Absolutely. And I think it's also really interesting that we don't seem to be hearing much from those families. I presume because their message would be very counter to what the Israeli state is trying to do. And I think that looking at it from the perspective of Netanyahu, who very likely his premiership will not um, survive the end of this this um, this war. Um, but he's trying to claim it. He's trying to say, look, I got something out of it. I got, you know, what we wanted, which was occupation of the region from the river to the sea, which is, you know, what they are trying to to um, to do, uh, and to de as you said, depopulate the area to push people into Sinai um, and take over those those areas with Israeli settlements. That's what Netanyahu has said himself. If you do like the work we do here at Navarra Media, 
and you're not already a supporter, then do consider going to the link in the description and becoming one of our amazing supporters. That link is navaramedia.com slash support. This is how we are able to come here and do this every day. Unlike a lot of other media outlets, we are powered entirely by you, our audience. So thank you so much for supporting us. We just couldn't do this show the way that we do it without you. So on to our next story. In his December 7th reshuffle, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak moved former Minister for Disability Tom Persglove to a new role, Minister for Legal Migration. But what he didn't do was appoint anyone new to the disability brief. It's the longest the government has gone without a Minister for Disability in 30 years. That's why Shadow Commons leader of the House, Lucy Powell, had this question for her Tory counterpart, Penny Mordaunt, in Parliament. The Prime Minister's emergency reshuffle has left us with no disabilities minister. Given the Women and Equality Select Committee's damning report on the government's disability strategy just last week, can the leader confirm that this position will be appointed before Christmas? She is right that the um, uh, Minister for Disability is a very important point, uh, and I am sure that that uh, reshuffle will uh, announcement will be made imminently. Um, but I would just also remind the House that every government department has uh, a disability lead in place. So that was Penny Morden promising that a disabilities minister would be appointed, quote, imminently. One problem, though, the Prime Minister seems to have a different idea. A spokesperson for number 10 has now confirmed that there will be no new minister for disability. I mean, it's wild. Instead, quote, it will be an existing minister taking on the brief. So in other words, disability will now just be added to the brief of some existing minister. That is a clear deprioritization of the role and not very reassuring for the 16 million people in Britain who are disabled in some way. Earlier today, I spoke to Anna Landry, a wheelchair user and global disability policy researcher. The current government has had a, a really cool, frankly, approach to disabled people in this country. Um, just a few months ago, we saw cuts, further cuts to social care. So those are the services that disabled people use to have a basic carer, to be able to use their homes and live in them comfortably. Um, and just last month, we saw what I would call historic uh, changes to the unfit to work benefits, where essentially the Tory government said that people who are sick and disabled and who have been deemed unfit for work still have a supposed duty to work for the sake of this country. Um, while at the same time, they just scrapped the position of disability minister and are very plainly um, shirking their duty to disabled people in this country to have not only a basic welfare system, but someone overlooking this portfolio of disability rights and disability justice. And I think it's really ironic that a country that likes to call itself the leader in disability rights across the globe has now gotten rid of the disability minister position. What has the relationship between uh, the disability rights movement and the Minister for Disabled People been like under the Tories especially? Has it been a good relationship? Is, he, is, the, is the Minister for Disabled People going to be missed? Well, this current one won't be missed, um, nor will the last several we've had under the Tory government. The fact is that the Minister for Disabled People position has been used basically as a stepping stone to higher ministerial positions. 
um, and very little has gotten done. But now the fact that the position is being gotten rid of altogether um, is even, an even more blatant proof that disabled people are simply not a priority for this government. You know, now they have two ministerial roles for handling immigration and none for disabled people. Um, and this is after making cuts to social care just a few months ago, and just last month, uh, making what I would call a historic change in reducing unfit to work benefits that are going to cause the death of quite a few disabled people throughout the UK if this isn't resolved. What we need is someone in the ministerial position, someone who has lived experience of disability, which we haven't had in years and years. So thinking about what kinds of policies and approach that you would like to see from a minister for disabled people, uh, what kind of things would you like to see perhaps under a prospective Labour government? And do you have much faith that things will be different uh, if Labour get into power? Yeah, I think this is a ministerial role with so much potential for good if it was just used as more than a political stepping stone. You know, right now, throughout the UK, disabled people are facing things like an accessible housing crisis, um, a horrible shortage in carers and personal assistants, unlivable wait times for access to services and assistive technology. And this ministerial position has the ability to network with other ministries, work across government to resolve these issues in ways that are, po are possible, that institutions like the Disability Policy Center, like the Global Disability Innovation Hub in this country, have been proposing for quite a while. These really aren't unsolvable problems. If we just had someone in the position who cared about it and who understood these issues, um, and what we are really pushing for is not only a reinstatement of the Minister for Disability position, but for a disabled person to be put in there. And I do hope um, that an incoming Labour government, if it comes to pass, would uh, implement that. Unfortunately, um, Labour was found to have taken the disability rights pledge out of their platform recently. And I do hope that they resolve that and show that disability and disabled people are a priority for them because there are 16 million disabled voters across the UK and we're listening and we're going to use our vote for those who are prioritizing us. When it comes to sort of zooming out and looking at the broader picture of what life is like for disabled people in Britain, obviously the movement is very diverse. The kinds of ways in which people are disabled is also very diverse. But if you were to summarize in a couple of points what the main priorities of the movement are broadly, you know, not just to do with electoral politics, but more broadly for British society, how would you kind of summarize those, those aims? One is infrastructure accessibility for people who have mobility disabled, uh, disabilities or who are blind. We're seeing a lot of issues with access to transport in particular across the UK that have been really frustrating. Additionally, um, resolving all of the cuts that have gone on over the last few years in our services that help us live day in and day out like any, anyone else. Um, we need these services to kind of make sure that we can work, that we can get education that we can go out and see our friends and family. Um, and I think that basic integration really unfortunately is still a priority. Um, that's what we're asking for. We're not asking for 
um, anything that hasn't been heard of, unfortunately, in the movement for decades. And that stagnation is, is really frustrating. On to our next and final story. Alan Dershowitz is a Jewish-American lawyer and academic who has been a staunch supporter of Israel. Norman Finkelstein is also a Jewish-American academic, an expert on the Holocaust and Israel and Palestine, and he has been one of Israel's loudest critics. They have now appeared on Piers Morgan's show the first time they've met on live television for two decades. They discuss the possibilities for the future of the region, and here's what Dershowitz thought. Israel may in the end not be able to completely uh, destroy uh, Hamas. I hope they can. I hope they can in the way that the United States and Germany uh, destroyed uh, Nazism and destroyed imperial Japanese. And in the end, what happened is the Japanese and the Germans were grateful for it. And then the United States and Great Britain helped rebuild Germany and Japan and turn them into great allies. That's my hope for Gaza. My hope for Gaza is that the people of Gaza will finally be rid of Hamas that uh, took over in a bloody coup and that the United States and Europe can then rebuild it better than it was before, like a Marshall Plan, uh, and hope that a democratically elected Palestinian people will then have a two-state solution. Yeah, but I've been in uh, favor but, but of let me just jump in there. Uh, since 1970. But Alan, let me just yeah. jump in there. Only tonight, the Israeli ambassador to the UK made it abundantly clear, two-state solution is gone. Israel, I'll, I'll play he's you the wrong. clip. I'll play you the clip, here. Yeah, but he's wrong. Is you there did. still a chance for a two-state solution? I think it's about time for the world to realize the Oslo paradigm failed on the 7th but, of October and we need to build a new one. And in but, order to build a new one... does that new one include the Palestinians living in a state of their own? Does, think, is that what it includes? I think the biggest question is what type of Palestinians are on the other side? This is what Israel no, realized they on have the 7th state, of October. Though? The answer is absolutely no. You see, when you hear that, oh, this wrong. confirms... This but confirms. Yeah, but hang on, Alan. This confirms what many Palestinians yeah. have feared, that for 20 years or more, uh, the Israeli government, and Netanyahu in particular, have had absolutely zero interest in any two-state solution. And, and so if that's but not... But let's remember that... But let's remember that Israel offered a two-state solution in 1948, 1967, 1994, 2000, 2001. They came very close to 2001. 2005, 2007, the vast majority of Israeli people, Israel's a democracy, unlike Hamas, the Israeli people will vote for a two-state solution if the circumstances are right, if there is no Hamas, and if the Palestinian Authority will have elections, and if the people of the West Bank and Gaza vote yeah, for but again, a peaceful again, Palestinian okay, I'm gonna come, Authority, I'm gonna come back there to will no, be a two-state solution. I'm gonna solution. come back to Professor Fikersan yeah. in one second, but. Again, today, Netanyahu has said explicitly there can be no Hamas run or Fatah run Gaza after this. He said it today. Yeah, he's, but got he's, no not intention. Be in power after he's got this. no intention of either he's Hamas not... or Fatah running Gaza. So who is going to run it? He, I think he, think, be, he thinks he wants be, to. He, he's not going to be in power after this. After this, there will be a national security government, probably headed by people like Gantz, maybe Bennett. Uh, the people of Israel are going to decide, and the people of Israel get to make that decision, and they're going to decide on a two-state solution. The one thing that's clear is with Gaza dominated by Hamas, there cannot be a two-state okay, solution. Let me go back to but Professor without Fikersen. Hamas, okay. anything's possible. Okay, I agree with that. I don't think Hamas can possibly be left in control. I want to make something really clear. Uh, 
the right to sovereignty and the right for people to have a state is not dependent on the grace of a neighboring and particularly a neighboring state that is hostile. The right to sovereignty and the right for everyone to have a state that represents them is inalienable. And so I thought it was so interesting that, you know, Dershowitz thought he was coming off as, you know, more liberal and, you know, more kind of like liberal than the the current, he was sort of distancing himself, right, from the position that was outlined there by the Israeli ambassador to the UK. He was saying, you know, she's wrong. Um, actually, the Israeli people want a two-state solution um, and they will vote for that. And, you know, then Palestine will get a state. It shouldn't be up to the Israeli people whether or not the Palestinians get a state. Is it up to France that Britain gets a, has sovereignty? No. That in itself shows you that the Palestinians are not treated as human beings or as sovereign subjects. Um, and it's very important to remember that Israel should not be able to decide. I mean, they do decide because that is how that is how colonialism works. But it is not the inalienable right of the of Israeli people to decide whether or not the Palestinians deserve a state. Full stop. We heard um, Dershowitz there saying that he wants to see essentially a martial plan style support of Gaza after this war. So if Israel are successful in removing Hamas, that the country should be treated how Germany and Japan were treated after the Second World War. And his argument put a lot of faith in the will of the Israeli people, um, a point that Finkelstein picked up on. Professor Dershowitz attaches a lot of uh, importance to the what the people of Israel want. And so let's look at what the people of Israel want. According to the most recent polls, 60% of Israelis believe, Jewish Israelis, 60% of Jewish Israelis believe that Israel is not using sufficient force in Gaza. 60% believe that Israel should, or the government, should escalate the amount of force it should use in Gaza. Number two, it's the Israeli government, excuse me, it's the Israeli people who democratically elected this ultra-right-wing government. It's not as if the claims are made that Hamas has been imposed on the people of Gaza. But there is no imposition in Israel I quite agree with Professor Dershowitz, at least for Jewish Israelis, for Jewish Israelis, it's a democratic country. And they democratically elected the ultra-right-wing government. So I think those are two very good indications. I can't say they're very auspicious indications, but they are very good indications of what the Israeli people want. That 60% of the Israeli public want more and not less bombing of Gaza shows how effective Netanyahu's government messaging has been domestically. But a separate poll conducted in Palestine also shows how counterproductive the assault has been for Israel if their aim really is to crush Hamas. It shows support for Hamas across the territories is high, with a majority saying that they want Mahmoud Abbas, head of the PLO, to resign. Now, these findings are significant for two reasons. The first is that Abbas is the Americans' preferred Palestinian partner for any potential deal. 
But Palestinians have long been frustrated by what they see as a lack of progress towards a settlement under Abbas's leadership. The second is that those figures show a dramatic rise in support for Hamas. In September, just 12% of Palestinians in the West Bank supported Hamas. Now it's 44%. And in the same period, support from people in Gaza has risen from 38 to 44%, despite being bombed indiscriminately for more than two months. With that level of Palestinian support, it may become inevitable that Hamas will have to appear in negotiations, a fact that many in the West will have difficulty accepting. Here's what Finkelstein had to say about that. I am not going to make any brief for Hamas. It's for the people of Palestine to decide who should be their leaders, who should represent them. But I do have to ask you, peers, and I respect you. So I'm asking you this as a matter of not rhetoric, but one intelligent person to another. I'm asking a simple question. If it's the case, that the actions of Hamas on October 7th disqualify it from being party to a peaceful settlement. Roughly 1,200 people were killed, about 30 of them being children. Why is it not then also the case that the actions of the State of Israel since October 7th, the deliberate, the deliberate war of genocide against the people of Gaza, which has left about 15,000 people dead, not 1,200, 15,000, and has left dead not 30 children, but has left dead about 7,000 children. And as we speak now, a 7,000 more children are threatened with death because of starvation. I ask you, as a logical proposition, why isn't the state of Israel disqualified from any final settlement of the question? That was a very good example of what I like to call nonsense liberalism or liberal manifesting, where you just sort of say shit that is completely disconnected from the reality of the situation. So an example of liberal manifesting is, of course, the Palestinian Authority will have to come in and govern Gaza. With what legitimacy? On what mandate? What are they governing over? The idea of inviting the Palestinian Authority, which is already struggling with its own legitimacy in the West Bank, that they can be imposed by Israel onto Gaza and that the people of Gaza will be like, yeah, that seems fucking fine. Cool with that. Crazy, right? It's, it's liberal manifesting. The idea that Hamas, who were elected by uh, the electorate of Gaza in 2006 or 2007, uh, and after a coup against them seized power, uh, was retained power after a long and, and bloody struggle. The idea that you wouldn't include them in peace negotiations when they are, of course, the very people you have to be making peace with is, again, nonsense liberalism. And when you look at the way in which peace negotiations have carried out, I mean, uh, Alan Dershowitz liked to cite the example of World War II. We're not talking about World War II because we're not talking about the armies of sovereign states. We're talking about a people to whom statehood has been denied. Closer parallels are much more like, I think, uh, the situation in Northern Ireland, where, of course, the IRA had 
to be a part of peace negotiations because if they weren't, who the fuck are you making peace with? And I think that this is something which, because the discourse around Hamas presents them as outside of uh, politics, all right, they're just evil, right? The things they do are so depraved, they're just so evil. And this is not, of course, none of this is condoning what happened on October 7th. But the fact is, is that they are political actors. And bombing Gaza into smithereens is not going to do anything about that simple fact, which is they do have a degree of political legitimacy having come from, uh, you know, an, an election that was freely held in Gaza, number one. And then number two, of course, increasing numbers of Palestinians are feeling supportive of Hamas and less supportive of the Palestinian Authority and less supportive of a process that involves playing by the rules of Oslo. Because look at what Israel have been doing since the Oslo Accords. The Oslo Accords were um, deeply flawed, right? They're deeply flawed from the start because you had this idea that you could you could give uh, Palestine more sovereignty while maintaining an occupation at the same time. You can't do that. You simply can't do that. And then when you see after Netanyahu takes power, not only is any pretense of Palestinian sovereignty just cast in the bin, you've got the rapid acceleration of settlement expansion, that this is sort of the mainstream of Israeli politics now, because it's not just to do with Likud. Of course, if you're Palestinian, you're not going to have a load of faith in the peace process, which was established by uh, Oslo Accords. And then you know, sort of uh, renewed again at the attempted Camp David summit and later at Taba. I mean, it, you just wouldn't. And again, this is not to condone because I don't, I don't believe that targeting civilians is okay. I think that's a war crime. I'm not condoning. I'm explaining the context in which these things take place. If you were Palestinian and you've just seen over the last two months that your family, perhaps, friends, uh, your people are being bombarded, starved, shot at in Gaza, thousands of children being killed, that thousands have been rounded up in the West Bank and arrested, that you've got videos being circulated of IDF soldiers desecrating Palestinian homes and mosques. How do you think you're going to feel about the idea of revenge. You'd probably want it. You'd probably feel so despairing and so hopeless that the idea of the kind of playing by the rules that's going to get you what you want, that will have nothing for you. So I can really understand why in the West Bank support for Hamas has gone up. It's because what the Israelis have done is, one, kill off any possibility of peaceful negotiations. They refused to negotiate with Hamas back in 2007 in partnership with the Palestinian Authority. They refused to accept that basis for negotiation. And now they're refusing to even countenance the idea that to the political problem that Israel has of trying to maintain the occupation, being a Jewish majority state and uh you know, a nominal democracy at the same time. Instead of going, well, this is something that needs a political solution. This is going to involve a negotiation with those who have political leadership 
of the Palestinians, the Palestinian Authority, and of course Hamas. And so they're like, nah, we'll just kill a load of them and see what happens next. Of, of, of course, that completely um, diminishes the faith of ordinary Palestinians in some kind of diplomatic or political path forward. I wouldn't have faith in that process if I was Palestinian. And I think it's ridiculous to expect any Palestinians to um, hold to the same tired mantra that we have here in the West, which is there has to be a, you know, uh, a two-state solution. Of course, there has to be some kind of resolution, but Israel's not interested in a two-state solution. So all of this, just to come back to a phrase that I used in, in the first half of the show, it's just virtue signaling. It's just virtue signaling at this point to say things like the Palestinian Authority should come back to Gaza and that's the basis on which negotiations take place. Of course, Hamas can't be there anymore. Of course, Hamas have to be destroyed. Hamas are evil. All of this is just virtue signaling. It's just manifesting. It has no basis in what the reality is for Palestinians that has been created by successive Israeli governments and the Israeli army. Mm, and it feels like the conditions that are being created are, in a sense, to make genocide and ethnic cleansing the only resolution from, you know, the Israelis' perspective and from the perspective that the West seems to be backing. Um, and, you know, when you talk about the kind of how deep the violence of the past two months has gone, obviously I don't have statistics for this, but I would be surprised if there were many Palestinians left who weren't one degree removed from someone who has been killed, injured, arrested, or, you know, harmed dramatically, like severely in the past two months. That does something. And part of dehumanization is also to expect someone to have inhuman tolerances, like tolerances for violence against them that are would be intolerable for anyone else. And yet somehow this group of people are supposed to be able to just tolerate and tolerate and tolerate and like not experience trauma as a result of that. Um, but yeah, the liberal manifesting, I think that's a great way of putting it. And when you said that, I just tried to imagine like, what would a like liberals mood board look like? I feel like it would be really, really horrifying. I feel like a big picture of a very sanitized quote by Martin Luther King would be right at the center of it. But maybe that's like a little exercise um, for me to do over Christmas because, you know, that's how uninteresting my life is. <laughs> um, but thank you, Ash, for joining me tonight. Um, it's been a great show with you, a great first one back after a little break for me. It's been lovely having you back. Never, ever leave me again. I've become <laughs> very anxious in my attachment style, but hopefully you can fix that. <laughs> And thanks to all of you for tuning in. Uh, of course, do come back tomorrow for another show from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.